Welcome to the Metaphysical Martini Show, where wit and wisdom come together to bridge the gap between the spirit realm and the physical world. With Ani Avedisian, the suburban shaman, a production of Cosmic Reality Radio. Hello everyone, I'm Ani Avedisian and welcome to Metaphysical Martini. Three parts spirit, one part rational mind, add two drops of optimism. Give it all a good heart shake and pour. Dress it with the olives of grace and empathy. Sit back, sip slowly, and contemplate the wonder of cosmic creation. Hey everyone, a hearty hello to you all out there. Thanks for joining me for another round of Cosmic Cocktails on this week's Metaphysical Martini Show. This is the show that tries to sort out what's true, what's woo, and what gets flushed down the loo in today's crazed and confused world. And we try to do this subjectively. Objectively, putting aside preconceived notions and assumptions. Rising above the contradictory rhetoric of partisan politics, because our goal is to let the spirit inhabit the human, to see the world from a higher vantage point, and to let our higher selves guide our human selves. But this doesn't mean we ignore the dysfunction in our world. It doesn't mean we spend all day meditating in the lotus position or even the potus position. As important as meditation is, and it is, what we need today is a good dose of honesty. We need to look at the world we have co-created through our spiritual alignment, or lack thereof, and decide what we, the people, want to do about it. Because this show exists primarily to encourage we, the people, to connect the dots, to see through Deep State's relentless campaign of perceptual engineering, Look, folks, it's time to reclaim our minds and to open our hearts and to move our civilization into the light. And we do this on this show anyway by answering your questions. So keep them coming. Let's remind each other how to debate, how to discuss sensitive subjects with respect. You know, the purpose of debate is to expand consciousness for the betterment of mankind, to explore new ideas. A debate is not an argument to be won. It's an arena for collective growth. And it seems that we've forgotten that, and perhaps that's why we're in the mess we are. You know, today is a big mess. Everyone's yelling at each other. Let's not do that anymore. Let's listen to each other. And if we get a little uncomfortable, change your seating position and, you know, take a deep breath. So keep those questions coming, peeps. Send the questions via email to me at ani at aniavadician.com. And if you prefer snail mail, which apparently many of you do, send them to Cosmic Ani, P.O. Box 714, Wilsonville, Oregon 97070. Okay, so we normally start with Q&A, question and answer. But before we do that today... Before we start on Q&A, perhaps we should have a few words on the upcoming holiday season. At this time of year, it's easy to mismanage our time and our funds. Because out there, you know, between November and December, it's a bit of a consumer frenzy, isn't it? Retailers make about 40% or even more of their annual income in November and December, so understandably... They want to push their products and services right in our faces, and they want to keep pushing until we break down and buy something. And today's marketing specialists are very good at convincing us that love means buying useless gifts for each other. So let's remind ourselves this season that manufacturers will continue to produce whatever there is a demand for. If we don't want our planet to become landfill for discarded plastic, let's not purchase and create a demand for single-use plastic items. Now, I'm going to walk my talk on this like never before this year. So, for example, 
as much as I love Christmas crackers, that's the type you pull, not the type you eat, the English Christmas crackers. You pull, they explode and cheap shit falls out of them. Well, I won't be buying any more this year. I'm just not going to do it because they're filled with cheap and useless plastic toys. And those cheap and useless plastic toys will end up in my trash can and eventually in our precious topsoil. They do make very expensive Christmas crackers, but I can't afford those. So not going to buy them. I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to add to the landfill. I have a bit of an issue uh, with consumerism and holiday times, especially because I do believe we should put some thought into our gift giving. Let's plan ahead who gets what and why. After all, the holiday season is the same time every year. I don't know why people are shoved up against a counter on December the 24th. You're going, oh, my God, what shall I buy mom? Oh, my God, what shall I buy my wife? It's the same time every year. Okay. And the other thing is, is there really an obligation to buy everyone? We know a little something. I say we shouldn't be pressured into giving gifts just because it's the holiday season. That's marketing talking. And our gifts, when we give them, they should be meaningful. How well do we know the recipients? Do we know their likes and their dislikes? And if not, what what do we know about them? If we don't know anything about them, why are we buying them gifts? Now, I'm not trying to be a killjoy here. Far from it. Actually, I love the spirit of the holiday season. I like all those holidays. I'll celebrate everything with everyone. I really will. But I don't like the shameless commerce portion of it. Those subtle but clever advertising campaigns slowly saturating our minds with the subliminal message, gift giving equals love. It doesn't. We have to watch out for that sort of subtle mind control. Because as we know, If we hear something over and over and over and over and over and over again, at some point we give in and a part of us believes it's true and it's not. Another point to ponder in all of this. Well, it's what example we set for the children and for the younger generation. I mean, I wholeheartedly agree. Opening gifts under the tree or whatever is your Christmas or holiday thing, it's a treat and it's great fun. And I support that. But there is also a very holy aspect to the holiday season, you know, even without the prophets and their incorrectly documented birthdays. And um, we don't even know if they existed. But, you know, the seasons are changing. That in itself is holy. Mother Earth is shifting gears. We're going into winter, a time where we help one another traditionally because, well, in days gone by, resources were scarce in winter and many people starved to death or froze to death in winter if they didn't have the support, the help of their neighbors. Now, I say in days gone by, but those days are back, even in our so-called first world countries. The homeless population is rising daily, and if anything is being done to help, I can't see it. All I see as I drive around town are tents on the sides of the road, on the sides of the freeways, under bridges, against walls, anywhere that could provide shelter from the elements. There are so many of these growing every day, they're turning into unofficial little tent villages with with barbecue stations and common areas. It really is getting out of hand, and it's a shame, a deep shame for a first world country who spends billions and billions, if not trillions, on war, that we have people that have to live in tents on the side of the road, don't even have a flushing toilet. So my point with all this, look, of course, we should enjoy the holiday season. Life is hard. Enjoy the holiday season. Share good times with our families. And ultimately, if you want to get into the deep core spirit stuff, we are each of us responsible for our sense of prosperity consciousness. But we must not pretend that poverty has not reared its ugly head in our own backyards. And for many urban dwellers, that is a literal statement. While we enjoy the season, while we catch up with family, friends and whatever, 
It's also an opportunity to discuss the value of, of grace, compassion, empathy, and my favorite, just plain common decency with our young ones. And let's be sure that the help we send starts with those in our local environment. Now, before you all get your knickers in a twist, because every time I say something like that, uh, lots of twisted knickers out there. Let me say that as a spiritual counselor, I see all life forms as points of light. Clearly, in the eyes of the divine, there is only unconditional love and unconditional love is absolute equality. I say start locally, I guess for two reasons mainly. One, don't ignore what is in your own backyard. Don't pretend it's not happening. Sending money or whatever to those suffering in other countries is wonderful and should always be part of our practice because eventually, God willing, well, God is willing, if we're willing, one day we will wake up to the realization that we are indeed one cosmic soul having multiple experiences. I say start in your own backyard so that we're aware of the needs within our own community and we should strive to fix that problem first because there is great truth in the saying, Charity begins at home. Once our community is stable and a good model for others to follow, then our outreach beyond our borders will have more impact and it will certainly have credibility because it doesn't have credibility now. It's all to do with agenda because, hey, if we stop fighting wars and creating all these problems in the first place, if we put a stop to offshore banking and everybody paid their fair share of tax and the individual citizen was not taxed, we would be living in a very different world. We would not have these people freezing on the sides of the freeways, having difficulty finding a place to have a poo and have a shower. This is just shameful. And yet we spend trillions on war. So I think it's very important that while we enjoy our children and we show them a good time, we also teach them that the world that's been created isn't particularly fair but we can fix that and we can, you know, give them a hand in fixing that. The other thing that's very important that people talk about ad nauseum, but they don't really, I don't think it gets through, is when you are gift giving. Yep, the world is a smaller place these days. You can order anything through Amazon. Um, we have FedEx. You can get stuff all over the world in one or two days. And that's lovely. But if we're putting thought and meaning into our gift giving, if we're going to reevaluate the whole thing, then let's do what we can to see if the goods that we need are available locally. If they're not, fair enough, you know, do what you do. But if they are, even if it's just a little bit more, let's buy locally and let's create a demand for local and sustainable. Because if we don't, it's going to be globalized and centralized it pains me to see main streets or if you're from the UK, we used to call it the high street or the high road. You know, it pains me to see the main streets dwindle and in some places completely disappear. Once you lose your main street, I think you've lost the heart of your community. And it's us, the little people doing little things every day that support the main streets, support local industry, artisans, the local shop. We no longer have the butcher, the baker, the candlestick maker, do we? It's all in the food section of one supermarket or another. And that's sad. Can't do much to stop that, but I think we can stop the erosion of it further. So that's my little pontification, my little rambling rant on the holiday season. Just a request for us to be, to be mindful. You know, not everybody needs a cheese tray from Walmart. If you don't know anybody and you don't know what to get them, ask us, do I have to get them something? You know, uh, anyway, I don't want to be a killjoy. So happy holidays, everyone. <laughs> it really is my favorite time of year. But uh, I think we need to do a little better. All right. Well, that's enough of that then. Let's get on with Q&A because that's the main purpose of the show. All right, let's get something from the hat. And our first question today is from a gentleman in Boise, Idaho, who wishes to remain anonymous. And there's no problem with that. You do not have to identify yourself. It's not as if you're a <clears throat> government whistleblower or anything. Uh, we just want to know what's on your mind so we can debate it. 
And Mr. Anonymous asks, Dear Miss Annie, we're not seeing too many crop circles these days. Do you know anything about them? Who makes them and why? And are we going to see any more? Well, there's a good question. Something we haven't discussed on this show yet, I think. Well, not that I would know. Um, let's see. Crop circles. Yes. Those large, sometimes intricate patterns appearing mysteriously overnight in our grain fields. I think we first became aware of them en masse uh, in the late 1970s. And the early patterns, they were quite simple. But over time, they evolved into beautiful, complex designs. So, yeah, who creates crop circles and why? Well, there was a documentary I watched that was made in England, and apparently some of the initial ones were made by university students who were having a bit of a laugh after going to the pub and having a few pints. Um, but then the designs got very, very intricate, so intricate, in fact, that I think we can, we can rule out inebriated college pranksters. And there was something else when they started to analyze the cereal crops that were part of the crop circle, that were within the crop circle. The nature of the cereal crop had changed. It wasn't just flattened um, with a plank and stomped on by some drunk university students. The inside had been overheated or microwaved uh, in, in some way, but it was really altered in a way that nobody could understand. So I can't prove anything to you, of course. I know it's extraterrestrials. But then to get back to Anonymous's question, uh, Mr. Anonymous, not, not Anonymous, the organization, um, what is the message behind the crop circles? And why would highly advanced extraterrestrials play etch-a-sketch with our cereal crops? I mean, are they trying to communicate with us? And if they are, then why are they choosing crop circles as initial contact? Well, I actually asked a few of my ET friends, and this is uh, their response. They say, well, here's the thing. We must take great care when communicating with you not to give the establishment ammunition. We speak all Earth languages, so practical communication is not the problem. If we wrote in large letters across the sky, hello, people of Earth. We are your intergalactic family, and we wish to make peaceful contact with you. If we land our craft and show ourselves to you, something we long to do, if we did things along these lines, your world controllers would find a way to use it against you. They would trick you into believing that our peaceful intentions are really threats. Your propagandists would be instructed to portray us as flesh-eating monsters, and would make full use of the opportunity to further erode your civil liberties. We favor crop circles over mass hysteria. It is our way of letting you know that we are close. So close, in fact, that we can create artwork in your fields. It is our way of proving to you our peaceful intentions. Yes, we are a conglomeration of advanced beings. That doesn't make us better than you, it just makes us advanced beings. We are close enough and advanced enough to cause great damage to your world if we so choose. But instead, we choose to make pretty patterns in your bread material. <laughs> many races and many different artists are involved in the creation of the circles, so do not work so hard to uncover a common thread between them. It is as we stated just now. We are here... We are powerful. We come to help, not to harm. Well, Mr. Anonymous from Boise, Idaho, that's encouraging, isn't it? Um, Flesh-eating reptiles are not going to descend upon us. They're just going to make pretty patterns in our bread material. So, yeah, I like that. Uh, I like that answer from our ET friends. They're just saying we're here, we're near, we're good, and be cool. So, on to another question, and this one is from Bobby back in the UK. Oh, Bobby says, what happens to dark souls when they die? Where do they go? Is there a hell of sorts for them? 
and is there eternal damnation? And what happens to the really, really nasty buggers? Hmm. Okay, I, I take it you mean buggers in a general uh, sense there, Bobby. Um, but okay, uh, very nice, very nice question. Let's let's tackle that question. All right. Uh, I think first let me correct the term dark souls. The soul, which is our divine cosmic spark, is never dark. It is radiant and it is the only part of us that is real. And I say that, what I mean by that, in shaman law, true reality is that which cannot be changed. Everything else is an experience. An experience is a constant stream of change, multiple lifetimes, multiple personalities, but the soul spark, the divine core, remains unblemished. Darkness, well, it's a personality construct. Ours is a free will universe. The personalities we play are free to conduct themselves in any way they please. And upon death, upon mortal death, our light bodies, uh, well, they'll surround the soul, the soul spark, and we travel to the realm commonly known as heaven. Mm, lovely martini today. Now, heaven has multiple levels of vibration. So when we arrive, we're greeted at the level matching our current state of awareness. There is no such place as hell. That's something the religious establishment invented to terrorize us into submission. But lower levels in heaven do exist to house and counsel those who continually choose darkness over light. I have to say that everyone there is greeted with unconditional love, no matter what they've done, even if they've worked diligently to block out the light, if they've lived miserable lives and harmed themselves and others, because that is, after all, the nature of unconditional love. And wherever we find ourselves in heaven, even in the lowest containment areas, loving guidance, well, it's available 24-7 because the reason we have these multiple incarnations, the reason we thrust ourselves into these psychotic scenarios, well, it's evolution, isn't it? To remember that we are, at our core, pure, unblemished cosmic souls, powerful, magnificent manifestations of source energy. Once we remember that, and start operating from that vantage point. We can manipulate the energy of our chosen realm in any way we wish. And illuminated souls will always choose to be guided by source. It's a difficult planet, this one, isn't it, to live on right now? I mean, right now it's bonkers with bells on, ding ding. So, you did some bad things. Take a number. If we recognize the error of our ways, if we make amends where possible and shift perception and focus, we're back on track. That's unconditional love. Now, at this point, when I say stuff like that, people, you know, someone usually blurts out, but that's not fair. Why should someone who behaved badly, committed crimes and made others suffer be forgiven and get away with it? While someone like me, who minds my P's and Q's and pets other people's dogs, gets nothing. Well, if you feel that way, clearly you have not understood the meaning of unconditional love. Because, darlings, it's not a contest. There are no winners. In the eyes of the divine, we are all equal. Unconditional love equals absolute equality. All right, shifting back to the dark personalities. Now, there are some who, after repeated incarnations, have perfected the vibration we call evil. Those beings are not housed in heaven because their hearts are too cold even for the lowest containment areas. The soul spark is there, of course, but they have blocked the pathways to it over time. These peeps, they're housed in a small, dense realm from which it is impossible to escape, and it's patrolled by highly advanced light beings, a sort of cosmic SWAT team who monitor all the activity there carefully. And apparently, once in a very blue moon, a beam of light is visible from within this realm, and this means a dark one is awakening. It has begun to feel again, and probably what it's feeling is, oh crap, and remorse. 
And if the light is strong enough and it's on for long enough, the SWAT team swoops in, grabs it and takes it to heaven's lowest containment area. But I am told this is very, very rare. And that the exit operation, the going in there, the extraction process has to be very, very quick because that realm is so dense, it can actually affect the advanced light beings if they're there long enough. So what about all the people in that dense realm that don't get rescued? Because that's about 99.9% of them, apparently. Well, the rest are reabsorbed into creator's uncreated mass, back into source creator's pool of potential. And that's not our local universal God. It's not the God of this universe. That is source creator, alpha, omega, the beginning, the end, and the allness, the totality. So since nothing impure can live within source, all the memories of these um, sociopath peeps and their monstrous acts, they're washed clean. And they are free to start the cycle of life once more, but at a much lower level much lower. For example, think earthworm or little tiny bug, something that is starting out at the very beginning of first dimensional life and trying to get to the light. So that's what happens to the dark souls, which are not really dark souls. They are dark personalities, always remembering that we incarnate into bloodlines and DNA coding and all of that. And that does make a huge difference in how we live our lives, which is why it's so important that we focus and spend some time every single day breathing and contemplating our true nature, which is source energy, pure, unblemished, cosmic, divine, potential, having temporary individualized manifestations as humans on this planet. We are at our core perfection and magnificence. And let that knowledge be the primary vibration within our field, within our energy field, because then the spirit will inhabit the human and the human will have a jolly good life. And that's all we want, a jolly good life. All right. Thanks from uh, Bobby there in the UK. Here's another question. And this is on a very pretty postcard, and it's from the Cotswolds in the UK. I love that part of the world. Well, it's nice to know my fellow Brits are listening in and that they've forgiven me for abandoning ship and moving to America, where, by the way, I am very happy, even though no one here warms up the teapot before brewing the tea. What is up with that, people? Okay, I'm going to have to do a YouTube video on how to make tea. Anyway, this one is from Jennifer in the Cotswolds, and she asks... When we die and go to heaven, what if we don't want to reincarnate? What if we just want to stay up there? Is that possible? And what if you don't want to continue with the process of life, uh, eternal life? Is there an opt-out clause? (laughs) What an interesting question. Okay, let's take it one segment at a time. Jennifer, when we go to heaven, what if we don't want to reincarnate? What if we just want to stay up there? Well, there is no rule, actually, that you have to reincarnate. You can stay up there for as long as you want. You can still have a personality up there. There's a lot to do. It's a huge realm. It's a beautiful realm. Excuse me. Apparently one of the most beautiful heavens in in, in the whole universe. So you can join a choir. I mean, I just can't even begin to tell you what you can do, especially since you can make things happen, manifest, and then departiculize with your mind. It's, It's just a wonderful thing, wonderful place. There's universities. You can travel to other heavens. You can travel to other planets, depending on your vibrational frequency. So no, you don't have to reincarnate, and you can stay up there. But the thing is, you see, we are created to create, And you go up there and you do your life review and you stay up there for as long as you want and say you're really having a marvelous time. At some point, you're going to figure out that there's something you didn't quite work on properly on this planet or there's something that you want to experience in physical form somewhere. And it may not be even be a karma balancing thing. It may just be, gosh, I want to go and swim in that sea on that planet. It's so beautiful. Or gosh, I want to go to that planet and eat that particular chocolate and see how it how it tastes. There could be, you know, I'm being a little bit flippant here, but why not? You know, 
there's a million and one reasons why inside of us we're sort of hotwired to take the sense of our cosmic divinity, thrust ourselves into a physical world and say, oh, I'm sure I'm going to remember that I'm divine and I'm sure everything's going to be fabulous. Well, <laughs> we all know how well that works, uh, don't we? But no, you don't have to come back, but you will want to. It just seems to work that way. And then you've written, what if you don't want to continue with the process of eternal life? Um, is there an opt-out clause? I can't imagine why we wouldn't want to continue with the process of eternal life because it's so exciting and magnificent. But there are people who have had very difficult lives and all they want to do when they get to the other side is sleep. And they might sleep for a whole 20,000 or 26,000 cycle year, you know, and sleep. And they'll just say, well, wake me up when you feel I've recovered. And these souls have a chance. They can sleep for as long as they want. And then somebody will wake them up and they can continue. Or I suppose on some level they can choose to be to be reabsorbed into the uncreated mass. But they would have to go through a really arduous purification system so i think at some point even if you choose to sleep up there for years and years and years and years um, there's the glory of creation and the adventure the excitement is going to call you back onto a physical realm but no you don't have to come back and uh, of course there's an opt-out clause you know creator will take you back into its mass if that's really what you want interesting question <clears throat> thank you very much for that one all right, and I think we have time for another question before we try to do all of the other segments. Uh, this one is from Lou. Uh, that's L-O-U, not L-O-O. <laughs> Although I don't know, you might have written it in the Lou. Anyway, Lou says, this question is about the soul's evolution. Will there be a time when a soul has experienced everything there is to experience? And if so, what happens to it after that? Good questions this week. Um, I don't know that there could ever be a time when we have experienced everything there is to experience because experience is just endless. But let's assume there is. Maybe we run out of algorithms. We run out of different scenarios that can only be played a certain amount of times. Maybe perhaps your soul has experienced just about everything that's currently available to it in the cosmos and is highly evolved and just thinks that it's of more value to go back into the uncreated mass of source energy than to start the process all over again. And I understand that at that point, uh, you go through the purification system, because even then there's a purification system, because nothing impure can return or comes from the heart of source. All of our perceived impu impu impurities Rebooting the Unibot, one, two, three, all of our perceived impurities come after the Big Bang once we started going into physical life forms. So if you've done it all and you can go up to the creator and go, look at all my lives, look at all I've achieved. And all of my lives, I got up there and I said, I'm divine. I brought divinity into the darkest, deepest physical realms. I did it. And then creator will take that after purification, put it back into source and it sweetens the pot and it's there archived the experience. You can go back in and you join that wonderful uncreated mass. But I've got to tell you, at some point or another, that part, <laughs> that part of creator is still shooting out new souls. That's what happens at some point or another. We just want more adventure. But, yeah, that is what I have been told happens. You can go back in when you feel you've done all there is to do. Good questions. And one more, I think. Oh, I remember this one. <clears throat> okay. Uh, dear Arnie, I wrote to you a while ago asking your views on abortion. You told me my question was incomplete. I discussed this with my mother, and this is my new question. Do you think abortion is a sin against God? Hmm. Well, that would depend on your definition of sin and upon your understanding of God. And God knows 
there's thousands, if not millions, of viewpoints on that and levels of consciousness on that. So I'm going to answer the question, and I'm going to keep it about abortion. From a shaman's point of view, when someone gets pregnant, the incarnating soul goes into the soul star chakra, which is the highest uppermost point of your chakra, way, way above your head. And at that point, of course, they are feeding energy into the womb and the little fetus thing is being grown and uh, all happy and warm and developing. Okay? But, the, but the incarnating soul is still in the soul star chakra and it's not a baby yet. It is a originating soul. It is a mass of consciousness and it's free to fly backwards and forwards between heaven and earth and it's free to have adventures. And the reason this is, is because you get, as an incarnating soul, you get until the seventh month of the gestation period to see if your parents are honoring their pre-birth agreements and soul contracts to you. And if they're not, you get to go home. Uh, that's why I think there's quite a lot of stillbirths, unex unex unexplained stillbirths at the seventh month. So that's how it works from a shaman's point of view. If you have an abortion before the seventh month, clearly it would have to be way before the seventh month. It's not murder if you don't want that child and if you can't care for that child you can't make accommodation for that child, the incarnating soul knows that and it sees that its pre-birth agreements with you have been broken and there is no value for the incarnating soul in coming down. So it's very happy just to go back and rewrite contracts and have another go with someone else. Um, I don't believe in sin. I believe in errors in perception and action. And whatever you want to call God or supreme cosmic intelligence, I believe is absolute equality and unconditional love. And I think it's hypocrisy to call terminating an unborn murder when we put people in uniform and send them all over the world to murder people who are already fully grown. And I feel it's hypocrisy that people do that and that they condemn people to the death penalty. I think there's a tremendous amount of hypocrisy around that. I don't think human beings are thinking straight. They have their emotions triggered. It is not murder, in my opinion, or in shaman law, to terminate an unwanted pregnancy. It benefits everybody all around. You want to talk about murder, stop ending wars. So that's my take on that. And thank you, by the way, uh, this uh, young lady for going back and discussing it with her mother and reformulating the question and bringing it back into a, an, an arena where it can be discussed. Uh, bless you for that, for wanting to share, wanting to open up and wanting to talk about this. I have a very strong feeling you don't really agree with my point of view, but that's totally fine. Thank you for asking for it. Okay, I think that's it for um, the questions for now. If we have time at the end, which I suspect we won't, we will get back to more of them. But right now, doo -doo 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 -doo, it is time for the Wizard's Gizzard, a little spiritual ritual that you can make habitual. So today, let's explore our physical bodies. Now, I don't mean to suggest anything naughty by that, by the way, nothing lewd or graphic, because, well, I was, after all, raised in Great Britain, and we don't go in for that sort of thing. Um, what I really mean is I would like to address the cause of illness in our bodies, especially chronic conditions. So I think we all understand that all things physical come from nothing. Everything in the physical realm is a side effect of thought forms in the non-physical world. Ergo, illness in the body has its roots in our thought forms. Now, as with all spiritual practice, this takes time to master, and it certainly isn't something we can tackle overnight. We can, however, make a start. 
Breathe deeply and slowly and purposefully. Let the oxygen saturate and relax every cell in the body. Focus on the condition troubling you. Where is it in your body? If it's in one location, you can place your hand on it or just above it, if you can get to it. If it's in multiple locations, you can place your hand on the most painful part of it, or you can place your hand on the area of the thymus gland, which is located behind your sternum, between the lungs. You can look it up. There's little diagrams on, on Google, whatever. Okay. Keep breathing because ritual breath is sacred. That's why they call it the breath of the divine. And as you breathe, ask your body to show you the root cause of the condition. Keep breathing. Allow the body to send the information. It may come in the form of, uh, well, fully formed images, could be short videos, could just be flashes and glimpses. Or you may hear a voice whispering in your inner ear, or you might see writing on the wall. Quite literally, everyone receives information differently. But however you receive the information, make a point of writing it down and recording it somehow. Don't dismiss anything you receive, no matter how ridiculous it may sound or how painful it is to you. And if you're someone who has problems with self-honesty, take a number, um, initially it may well be the voice of your inner resistance you're hearing, but if you continue to breathe, dissipate that field of resistance. If you continue to allow your body to share information with you, you will benefit greatly from the protocol. Now, as an example, I worked with a client recently, and I do have his permission, by the way, to use this as an example. This chap has lower back pain, had it for a long time, very long time. The chiropractor didn't find much wrong with him, not enough to account for the moderate to severe pain he presented with. Uh, the x-rays came back clean. He's pretty fit. He's pretty lean. He's a vegetarian. He exercises. He eats well. He has no other symptoms. So in short, there's no explanation for the lower back pain, the chronic back pain. So we started the breathing protocol, and I'd say within six minutes, seven minutes, he complained of a searing pain in his left ankle. So I asked him to switch his focus from his lower back to his left ankle and to ask the body to root, uh, ask the body to find the root cause of that pain. And he did. He stuck with it. He breathed. He asked the body. And as he did that, he became very emotional and he started to cry. And when he had gathered himself, he told me that his body replayed a video of an incident when he was three years old. He was playing on his new tricycle, a toy he loved very much. And while he was happily biking about, his older brother came up to him and knocked him off the bike, resulting in a fractured ankle. Aww. I asked him to share the emotion he experienced at the time of the incident. And he cried again and it took some time. But he continued to breathe and he said he felt betrayed. His older brother was supposed to be his protector, his guardian. And he was heartbroken by the betrayal. Well, lower back, by the way, is all about support feeling supported by life, the universe, your tribe, your older brother who's supposed to be your protector, not knock you off your trike. So once we'd identified the root cause, it was easy to work on removing the electrical disruptions in the aura caused by the incident, the emotional triggers. In this particular case with this chap, we blended emotional freedom technique with deep breathing. And I'm happy to report that both lower back and ankle pain have not returned. So it's a very simple protocol. And if you suffer from chronic pain, with a little persistence, diligence and focus, 
it might just change your life. And if you'd like a one-page PDF on this, explaining the process to you, drop me a line at arnieavidician.com and I will happily send it to you. Because a few minutes a day and within a week, you'll identify the root cause of chronic pain and you'll start to peel the layers away and have a functional life. And oh my gosh, who doesn't want a functional life? So that's the whiz giz for today. All right. What shall we do next? Uh, I think it's time for a tiny pat of poetry. Yes, folks, after a hard day's shamaning, I like nothing better than coming home to a nice cup of tea or a small drinky poo, putting my feet up and writing really bad, non-peer-reviewed poetry. After all, why have Shakespeare and literary prowess when you can have Cosmic Arnie and a whole lot less? Today, I would like to share some of my shorter poems in my Poetry for ETs series. If anyone out there believes that Earthlings are the only form of humanoid life in the cosmos, well, quite frankly, you're a bit of a twit, aren't you? Okay, on to the poems. Three short ones. Let me take a sip of my little teeny here. Oh, lovely. I look forward to the show because it's the only time I actually can drink alcohol. <laughs> Here we go. E.T. Poem number one. Orbiting Earth. Watching mankind's bizarre rituals. It made me so depressed. I almost became a little grey. Little grey, get it? Zeta reticulin, little grey? Okay, never mind. I thought it was funny. All right. E.T. Poem number two. When baby demons gnawed at my toes, the aliens sighed in sympathy. Can you tell, I asked. Can you see the bites? No matter, said they. Socks won't preserve your dignity. That one's quite profound. And uh, I'm really trying hard to keep it together here and not burst out laughing. And E.T. Poem number three for your amusement and edification, my darlings. My spaceship hit an asteroid. All alone in the void, I was annoyed. Well, you'll be pleased or perhaps you'll be horrified to know that I have about 300 of these E.T. poems. So that's something to look forward to, isn't it? Yes, indeed it is. All right. Now I think it is time for Plato Chips, where we share quotes from a philosopher of note. And today's choice is Ibn Sinner, who graced this earth from 980 to 1037. I have had a small handful of letters from philosophy freshmen who are keen to point out the Greco-Roman bias in Western teachings, and would I please feature philosophers from other cultures? And one chap said, you call this section Plato Chips. That's biased. No, it's not. I call it Plato Chips, my darling, because I think it's funny, not because I have any bias. For heaven's sake, my race ancestry is Armenian. I grew up in London. Believe me, I understand bias. <laughs> So can I do something other than Western teaching? Why, yes, I can, and I will. And I'll start today with a chap who was a Persian philosopher and physician. I also believe he was a theologian and a chemist and uh, a mathematician and just about everything else there was to be. His name is Ibn Sinner. He was born in what is now called Uzbekistan. And I think he died in what is now called Iran. I'm not sure, but I think he was born in the Uzbekistan region. He died in the Iranian region. Um, he is better known in the West anyway by his Latinized name, Avicenna. And that's Alpha Victor India, Cupcake Edison, Nutjob, Nutjob Alpha, Avicenna. That's how you would have heard from him. A very important figure in the Islamic golden age. My favorite quote from him is, there are no incurable diseases, only the lack of will. There are no useless herbs, only the lack 
of knowledge. So there's a lot um, to learn about this chat, but I'm going to give you the highlights here because, as usual, we're running out of time. And I, I thought I would have trouble filling up this hour, but here we go. So Ibn Sina, he was around, as I said, in the Islamic Golden Age, and that occurred during the early Middle Ages, or actually not the early Middle Ages, the Middle Middle Ages. And at that time, Europe was really involved in religious dogmatism. And so there was no headway in philosophy. They were stuck in the religious dogma. But on the other side of the world, where philosophy was very stagnant in Europe, on the other side of the world, in the Islamic world, my gosh, philosophy flourished. And it's mainly because of this chap um, who's considered to be one of the most important figures in this era. He was also the chap that introduced the works of Aristotle and uh, the Neoplatonic ideas to the Islamic world. And his work is revered through all cultures. Uh, he, he, I loved his work on metaphysics because he argued that there was something called essence. And essence is something independent from existence. And it's eternal and unchanging. And he claimed that essence came before existence and that existence is simply accidental. And so according to him, anything that comes into existence is the result of an essence allowing for that existence. So I would say something along the lines of there is supreme cosmic intelligence and all life is a result of the self-expression of supreme cosmic intelligence. He calls existence, the physical life, accidental. I would call it a side effect of the thought process. And this notion that he wrote about of essence and existence is very similar to Plato's theory of forms, which is that, um, how do I explain this? The idea that everything that exists falls under a pre-existing archetype and that even when something no longer exists, the archetype template remains. So Ibn Sina did say, however, that there was one thing that was the first reality that even that came before essence, and that was Allah. And he said that it was a necessary being that one cannot define. And I would agree with that. How do you put words to explain the grandness, the grandeur, the magnificence of supreme cosmic intelligence? Or he believed as Allah was the first God, the first reality, as he called it. And he said that you can't ever attempt to define Allah, because the very attempt to define him creates the opposition. For example, if you were to say Allah is beautiful, then it must also mean that Allah is not ugly. But obviously that can't be the case because ugly people in the world exist and everything comes from Allah. So he used a lot of logic in his arguments. He was a devout Muslim, but he believed that logic and reason could be used to literally prove the existence of God and he used logic and applied it to the Quran to explain the Quran, which probably didn't go down too well in some areas. But he primarily used logic to explain concepts uh, that one acquires throughout the through the four faculties of reason, uh, estimation, retention, sense, perception and imagination. He encouraged people to have creative, imaginative minds, probably best known um what can I do? I think, oh, you probably know about his floating man theory uh, to demonstrate self-awareness, to demonstrate the immateriality of the soul. He created this experiment that he called the floating man. So he asks us to imagine a scenario in which we are suspended in the air. And as we hang in the air, we will experience complete isolation from our senses, uh, basically, which means we won't have sensory contact with our own bodies after a while. And he argued that even with this isolation from the senses, we would still have self-consciousness. And if a person that is isolated from sense experience still has the ability to determine its own existence, well, that shows that the soul is an immaterial subject, substance that exists independent of the body. So this points to the conclusion that the soul is perceived intellectually, I suppose. And furthermore, he believed that the brain is where reason and sensation interact with each other. Uh, he was way ahead of his time. So you might want to look that up. Um, 
Ibn Sinner's The Floating Man concept. And yes, I agree about the bias. I went to school and college in London, and we did touch upon the golden age of Islam, etc. But there is most definitely a Greco-Roman bias. So, Ibn Sinner, go out and buy books about him. I think we just have time for Tarot Agogo, a little shenanigana with the major arcana. And today's card is number seven, the chariot. Now, when we look at this card, although the chariot isn't shown in actual motion, the card is all about motivational force. It's about high energy, focused energy, concentration on a goal, full speed ahead. And this card suggests that if you're focused on a prize and you've crossed your T's and dotted your I's, you should go for it. Claim your prize. But a word of caution. If you're not Ben-Hur, keep your speed steady and don't be reckless because chariots can get you there fast, but they're notoriously difficult to manage and they tip over easily if not properly managed. So if you're not ready for a project or if the person driving the project is driving recklessly and is unprepared, this card will show up reversed. And if that happens, pay attention. So keywords that come up for this card... Determination, ambition, control, conquest, success, courage, balancing emotions to forge a clear path, staying centered. So as long as the card and the chariot, the card and the vehicle are upright, you will succeed. Things will resolve in your favor if you get this card and if you stay true to your path. But sometimes, just sometimes, it means you're going to buy a new car because not everything in tarot has to be life altering or mind-blowing. After all, tarot is a snapshot of current potential in our daily lives. And I don't know about you lot out there, but day to day, with the odd exception here or there, my life is interesting, but rarely mind-blowing. So when you read the cards, interpret the cards in relation to your current lifestyle. For example, the tower, the card that everyone dreads, it could mean all sorts of chaos ahead, And, of course, the cards surrounding it will help with the interpretation. But it could also be something as simple as a sprained ankle disrupting your plans for the week. Number seven, the chariot, one of my favorite cards. All right. At this point, I should tell you to visit my website, uh, arniavidician.com, and take a look at the upcoming classes that we have. I'm in the greater Portland area in Wilsonville, so... If you're as far north as Vancouver and as far south as Salem, come see me on November 23rd and we will do a cosmic conversation on discovering our past lives, which is always very exciting and interesting. And then on December the 14th, we are going to do a Shaman's Christmas, a special holiday edition of the Cosmic Conversation. And I'm going to bang on my drum and I'm going to take you on Shaman journeys And there'll be eggnog and bourbon and all sorts of interesting things as I discuss the history of shamanism with you. And in January, there will be Feng Shui 101 and the list goes on. It's all very exciting. I should also remind you to take a look at my own YouTube channel. Um, If you put Ani Avedisin in the YouTube search bar, I have about uh, 95 videos or so there, short ones, instructional videos. I'd love to get your input on them. Let me know how you uh, if you enjoy them. And if you have any suggestions for future subjects. And as I look at the clock, I have to say, well, my darlings, I think that's it for this week. We've used up a whole hour of linear time, an hour we will never get back. I hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as I enjoyed presenting it, because I truly did. Today's real-life martini was carefully crafted by yours truly using Three Olives Citrus Vodka, a very generous gift from a local fan of the show. I am deeply touched by your kindness, and if I'm honest, I'm a teeny bit tipsy as well. (laughs) Very nice vodka, thank you. And here I'm going to make a quick public service announcement. Cocktails are great, and best when they are an occasional treat. If you use high-quality ingredients and take the art of mixology seriously, one drink is plenty. It's been fabulous, my darlings. I'm Ani Avedisian. This was Metaphysical Martini, a production of Cosmic Reality Radio, to whom we are most grateful. Until we meet again, let the spirit inhabit the human.
You have been listening to The Metaphysical Martini Show with Ani Abedisian, the suburban shaman, a production of Cosmic Reality Radio. Music